Hello. This week, we are discussing sparkling wine and how it differs from some of our traditional other wines that we think of and some of the different ways that it can be made. This is definitely Haley's expertise. She is the sparkling wine queen <laughs> of Idaho, maybe of more places. <laughs> um, so Haley's expertise is definitely in traditional method of sparkling wine, like they make in champagne. We all know champagne, but we'll discuss why it's not necessarily all always called champagne. So we will be talking a lot about that and also touched on a touch on a couple of other ways that sparkling wine is produced. So Haley, I'm looking <laughs> forward to this conversation and let's start off first with just the basic question of what is sparkling wine? I'm Haley. This is Ashley. We are Whole Cluster Conversation. Sparkling wine is uh, my favorite kind of wine to drink. Of course. <laughs> um, That's why you're the queen. <laughs> it So sparkling wine is different than what we call still wine. So just like with sparkling water and still water, it's the same concept. And sparkling wine has bubbles, dissolved uh, CO2 in the, in the solution of wine. Yeah. So that's the most okay. basic kind of idea about sparkling wine. So it sparkles. Yes. Um, so you're using the term sparkling, but I've also heard people call it like bubbly wine, yeah. bubbles, just Fizz. champagne yeah. in general, Prosecco, you know, and then they start going into maybe the specific times. But why do we call it, like, what should we be calling it? Ooh. What are the terms? And when should we be calling it the specific ones? Right. So there are, I'm sure I won't get all of the terms uh, that all the names that people have for sparkling wine, but yeah, we, we tend to call ours sparkling wine, bubbles, bubbly fizz sometimes. Um, I don't like that one. <laughs> a lot of people so don't. It's, <laughs> it's very popular in the UK. People call sparkling wine fizz. I take that back. I love it. Now. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but there's also uh, the other side of that fizz coin is a lot of uh, non-UK winemakers uh, that use English as their first language will refer to wines that are slightly sparkling as fizz mm -hmm. rather than like a true uh, sparkling wine that has a lot okay. of bubbles in it. Um, but yeah, there's champagne that comes from the champagne region of France. And okay. there are a couple exceptions, but for the most part, if champagne is on a label, it's going to be coming from the champagne region of France and actually basically been approved by the government to uh, have that label on it. Um, but I've heard that before, but then there's other ones, like I said, Prosecco. Yeah, or, and sure. in France, uh, there's Cremant, which is okay. sparkling wine made outside of the Champagne region. Um, okay. And uh, there's, like you said, Prosecco, Spumante, um, Cava from Spain, oh, yes. Sect from Germany. There's all, like every language has their own um, name for sparkling wine. Uh, and within that can have multiple names, just like Champagne and, and Cremant. So, yeah, there's and a And these ton. aren't like the 
Italian version of saying sparkling. It's usually like the region that they're from. Yeah, or, or a I'm style. just thinking of transla- translation-wise. That's not what we're saying here. No. It's just, yeah. Not necessarily, okay. yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, I definitely think about like the effervescence of wine and, um, you know, that whole region. And, you know, I think I'm just going to go ahead and, and go there, Haley, and ask <laughs> like, so we have bubbles and like sparkling wine, but then sometimes people when drinking wine say, hey, there's an effervescence in this <laughs> wine, but that's not necessarily bubbly wine, correct? Right. So I think um, sometimes you could be tasting wines. Uh, probably the best indicator is the type of bottle that it's in mm-hmm. or the type of packaging. If you're tasting wine that's not bottled in, uh, or if it's in a bottle, I should say, and it's not in a champagne style glass. So like that thicker glass with the funny kind of uh, lip around it that allows it to have a crown cap or mm-hmm. that champagne cork with the cage. Um, it probably either, if it's meant to have effervescence, it's very light or Mm -hmm. it might not be meant to have effervescence. It might be a, a, you know, slight flaw or mistake, or maybe it was just the storage of the wine after it was bottled wasn't ideal. And so there was a little bit of residual sugar or what we call RS Mm -hmm. in the winemaking, um, world. And maybe that started to ferment again. Okay. So it's usually not a problem. Um, Sometimes it can make a really interesting wine. Sometimes it's done on purpose. Mm -hmm. But it can, if, if, uh, like, especially we were talking a couple weeks ago about wine storage. If you don't have your wine stored correctly and you uh, have wines that have residual sugar and they start to re-ferment in bottle, you can have a big problem (laughs) in your cellar. Uh, Exploding bottles I've seen and, like, a big mess. Um, Uh But for the most part, it's not. Like, it's not dangerous unless those bottles are exploding. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be there when that happens. No. <laughs> In so many ways. If okay. they're corked, typically that'll just push the cork out. But sometimes, uh, yeah, yeah. It'll, okay. the whole thing just goes. <laughs> that, bo- that glass is not meant to hold pressure like a champagne bottle is. I tend to, well, because like you, I like bubbly wine and I like, effervescence in wine but that kind of gives me a pause and it's just like (laughs) okay let's think about this a little bit more like don't just always be excited about an effervescence in a wine there are Um, certain styles of winemaking too that sometimes lend themselves to having that effervescence or like a slight like almost it doesn't sometimes come across as bubbles but it's like a prickliness mm -hmm. in your mouth um so it's something called carbonic maceration. So it's a type of when you're making your wine, you actually let the berries stay as whole as possible and you Mm -hmm. let the fermentation happen inside the berries. Oh, okay. And um, not completely in the absence of oxygen because we've talked about yeast and how Mm -hmm. they like, they're happier with oxygen, but they can do their job without it. But um, they do produce more of that CO2 and they're kind of trapped inside those skins. And then uh, that, flavor almost texture kind of comes across in the wine even if it's not bubbly so they're not getting crushed essentially not yeah process. uh sometimes you know they still when they get pulled off the skin can split the berry can split and stuff but for the most part the berry is pretty whole and then there's also juice in there with it 
Well, that's really interesting. I haven't heard about that part. Yeah, cool. carbonic maceration. Nice. I like that word uh, <laughs> or two words together. Um, so is it possible to have wines that are bubbly that shouldn't be and converse, you know, bubble wines? I We've kind of, you know, played right. around that like, question, but I just want to get right at that of like. Yes. So we kind of talked about the first part of that. There's definitely a chance that you could open a bottle of wine and it has bubbles and you're like, hey. I don't think this is supposed to have bubbles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's not a problem. Um, sometimes it can make an interesting wine, but but typically if the winemaker isn't planning on that, it, yeah. it's, um, it's variable, whether it's a, a good mistake or a not good mistake. But the converse of that is sometimes you open a bottle of bubbly, you know, it's got yeah. a crown cap or it's got a champagne cork and you go to open it and it doesn't, you know, there's no telltale like it's still wine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's no telltale pushing out of the cork or that kind of thing. And it's uh, sometimes you can lose your bubbles. Uh, there's a couple ways that that can happen if you don't have a good seal mm. with your crown cap or your cork or whatever mm. vessel you're in. Uh, you can have a problem there, and the bubbles just escape. Or if you when you're making your wine, uh, mm-hmm. you leave it open too long in part of the process. So the bubbles escape there. So even though you think oh. you've had it closed, maybe it sat uh-huh. open on a table for too long and then it got uh, corked. Um, okay. And then, uh, but it was open for two hours and all the bubbles escaped. Oh, okay. That's yeah. like when I was just thinking of like when we were hanging out and doing the disgorging process exactly. that like that's kind of goes into we I was actually shocked I thought it had to be like instantaneous but you were like no they can sit here for like a little bit but yeah. it wasn't that long that we were letting them sit right but, we don't um, like to let our sit out when we're disgorging which is um maybe we'll talk a little bit about it today but basically removing the yeast in our bottles to make it Mm -hmm. more of a clear wine. Um, We'll open the bottles, get the yeast out, and then um, recap them. And at that point, you want to top up, or if you're going to add a little bit of sugar, your dosage level. Um, And in that process, they sit out on the table for a couple minutes. We, I I don't know, you were there. I I think most of our wines, probably it's less than five minutes that they sit open on a table and then they get recapped. And because that carbon dioxide is dissolved in the liquid, we Mm -hmm. lose a little bit of it. So the pressure in the bottle might be a little bit lower than it was when we first opened it, but it's still um, that all that CO2 or not all of it, but a lot of it is still dissolved in that liquid. And there's still that secondary process. So the stuff that was lost, you're getting a little bit back too, correct? Well, um, yeah, not for disgorging. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're taking it out. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Okay, so when we talked about Auburn wines, we talked a little bit about the history of how the wine came to be. And I love that conversation. And I encourage you, if you missed that one, um, go ahead and go back to that. But How do you figure sparkling wine came to be as a different type of class of wine, type of wine? Is there known history about this or is it a lot of just kind of hearsay? That's a really good (laughs) caveat to the question. Um, (laughs) We do have some known history. 
Um, and we do have a lot of hearsay history. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to go into what is what uh, when I'm telling it. But basically, the idea is once people started bottling wines, mm-hmm. uh probably they had certain wines that were effervescent, whether that was yeah. like, like, like we have champagne now, like really a lot of bubbles in a bottle, or if it was just, you know, lightly fizzy. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, we didn't, uh, as humans, a couple hundred years ago, even, um, but then you think about thousands of years ago, we didn't have a way to test the wine and say, oh, it's finished fermenting, it's dry, we're going to mm-hmm. go ahead and bottle it. So if you were putting it into clay jars or, you know, sealing it in some sort of bottle uh, or vessel, I'll say, because it wouldn't have to be a glass bottle, and there was still some yeast in there and a little bit of sugar, if that Mm -hmm. bottle warmed up enough, then that yeast would be like, oh, hey, there's sugar in here. I was asleep and dormant, but now I'm going to wake up and eat this sugar. Um, And then you get a little bit of that fizz or that kind of stuff. Do you think it happened first in Champagne or do you think that Champagne no. just took that on? I think, um, I do not think that it first happened in Champagne. I think it probably where they were fermenting anything is where it first happened. Uh, and and even drinking wine halfway fermented, you know, like uh, in Mesopotamia, if it was yeah. halfway fermented, it's going to have all that bubbles in it because it's still fermenting. So yeah. depending on how you classify your fizz. Uh, they were drinking sparkling wine, even though yeah. it was like half wine, half grape juice. Yeah. Um, I just imagine somebody back in the day being like, I like this. How do I make more yeah, of it? And yeah. then just like going with it. So Completely. I think the reason that champagne uh, kind of went with the sparkling wine was twofold. One, the region is a little bit cooler um, mm. than other regions. Uh traditionally. So when they would be ready to bottle their wines and cellar it and that kind of stuff, then they would go to bottle it and then, or, okay, I got to take a step back actually. They, uh, even 200 years ago, people didn't bottle their own wine. They actually shipped it in casks. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of their wine, uh, wasn't reaching a French market very well. Uh, so they were shipping a lot of their wine in casks over to England. And they would then there um, drink it out of the cask and all that stuff. They also, in the UK or what was England, uh, had a different way of making glass. So they decided, oh, well, if we have a half cask of wine, a lot of the time it goes bad. So if Mm -hmm. we can, instead of having a half cask, we can go ahead and bottle the wine that's in a partial cask. It's going to be better. And I think in that process, they realized some of the wines that were coming from Champagne actually would get into the bottle. Then the next summer would come around, it would warm up a little bit and they would start to have these bubbles in the bottle. All the stuff that was being bottled in England Mm -hmm. was like bubbly in the bottle when they would open it in the future. Everything that they were bottling in, not everything. A lot of the stuff they were bottling in champagne, because they this was something that caught on quickly. Oh, if we have a partial cask, we'll just put it in bottles. It'll be yeah. better wine over the long term. All those bottles were exploding because the glass being made in England at the time was being made differently and it was stronger. Okay. So there's a huge portion of the champagne history that actually is needs to, should be 
is credited to England and a lot nice. of the glass making going on there. So, so then, this is a real big side. Oh, go continue. No. No, I'm going to derail <laughs> us right now. <laughs> so yeah, I think that then they realized they there was a market for this sparkling wine. There were a couple people that were really key in helping that uh, from a marketing standpoint. So like they convinced uh, Louis and... Um, uh, Marie Antoinette, like, this is the cool new thing. So they started buying yeah. it at Versailles. And then if uh, it's bu- they're buying it at Versailles, all the other royals, you know, that visit them, people were like, oh, this is delicious wine. We got to get our hands on some. And then they really started to, around that time, or maybe in the 100 years before and after that, they really started honing how to make sparkling wine a really consistent and uh, high-end product by removing the yeast from it and Mm -hmm. making sure it was relatively consistent with the amount of bubbles that was in it, all that kind of stuff. And then the French started making the English style of bottles too, apparently. (laughs) Yes. Um, So my real bad derail that I just was thinking about was both of our love of Outlander and oh, yeah. how <laughs> the shipping and also just yes. like that history. It's like another element of the history that I think people nowadays forget about like the French influence in England and vice oh, versa. Yeah. Um, because, you know, that 1700s, there was a lot of interplay there so yes um, anyways that's really interesting and there's yeah if anybody has uh (laughs) questions about that there is a whole slew of interesting wine facts in dragonfly and amber because he's working in basically distribution (laughs) in (laughs) france yeah um jamie fraser is so Sorry, I told you it was a derail, but there's a fun fact about it. Maybe we should do a whole episode on just like wine in or drinking the drinkable stuff in Outlander. (laughs) That would be a lot. I think about that, like with those like different time travel shows or just like even when I watch like period pieces and I think about like, especially, you know, learning this stuff from you, I think about, oh, how is that really? Or looking at the glasses and the types of glasses and thinking, oh, did the people that made that set actually do a good job with the types of glasses of that period and that what they're drinking? Um, Yeah. So, or, you know, when traveling, it's a fun thing to see if you go to museums, but completely. (laughs) (laughs) There is that derail. Um, we just touched on it again. I feel like you just are leading to my next question of the particular regions. We talked about Champagne and we kind of quickly mentioned a couple, but what other big regions are focusing on sparkling wines? What are the some of the traditional regions? Like we think of Champagne, but like, are there some new and upcoming regions? Like, I don't know, maybe China. I know that they've been getting into wine. Um, so, yeah. yeah, the new up and coming region is actually in the south uh, of England. So okay. um, a little bit in Wales, but mostly like the southern coast, the Jurassic coast is what they call it locally. Um, mm-hmm. So if you think of Champagne in France and their kind of what they claim their terroir is, which is these like mm-hmm. beautiful chalky soils that the plant really um, struggles, but also has a foothold and like you get some of this minerality coming from the direct, directly from the soil. 
And then you think about the White Cliffs of Dover. Mm -hmm. That's the same uh, geological formation running through the crust there of the earth, supposedly. I don't, I mean, like this is all stuff that I've heard, but I don't, I'm not a geologist. (laughs) I do know some of the oldest rocks in the world are along there. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Um, So... There's a lot of this really beautiful chalky soil in the south of England as well. Mm-hmm. And with climate change, uh, Champagne is getting warmer, but so yeah. is uh, England. And so yeah. they there have been a lot of people that have started planting there and experimenting with making sparkling wine there. Um, Marshall and I went in 2016 and spent some time at Langham Estate, which is making sparkling wine um, near Dorchester in the county of Dorset. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, I mean, the sparkling wines coming out of there are, are great. <laughs> so I highly yeah. recommend if you can find a sparkling um, English or uh, British wine, definitely try it. I have heard that it's it's hard. They're, they're a small industry. I think that they distribute in maybe... Um, in Europe a little bit. It's harder to find mm-hmm. their stuff in the U.S., but I have heard down in Napa Valley, there's a wine shop down there that carries Nye Timber, uh, which okay. is one of the bigger um, uh, uh, wineries in in the U.K. So, so what about some of the traditional places? Right. So there's Champagne, of course. There's a couple mm-hmm. other places in uh, France that maybe, you know, Champagne for the most part, makes sparkling wine. There are people mm-hmm. in Champagne that maybe make some still wines, but uh, for the most part, they're going to focus on what they know sells and what their region has marketed, which is sparkling wine. Then there's a couple other places in France that make sparkling wine, but it's kind of in addition to their other uh, still wines that they're producing that are more famous. Uh, you think about cava, though, coming out of Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, there's the region near... Uh, it's called the Veneto region. So near Venice in mm-hmm. Italy is famous for Prosecco. So those mm-hmm. are kind of, I would say, like the three traditional regions. Um, That's interesting because I think about the climate is kind of similar in all those uh-huh. regions-ish. Yeah. So that makes that makes a little bit of sense with kind of what the, our previous conversation with the history of it. Uh-huh. So, so what varieties are people using? Of grapes, right? Making the the varieties vary. Um, in the Champagne region, where it's very traditional and it's kind of somewhat government controlled, um, you can use uh. Well, there's the three main grapes are Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. There are a couple okay. other grapes that uh, can be used, but those are the three primary grapes. And I would say okay. most sparkling regions, uh. Well, no, I shouldn't say sparkling. Most most places that are making sparkling wine, they find what what grows well in the region that retains mm. acid. So that's what they're looking for is something that okay. has high higher acid to kind of balance with those bubbles. You want that kind of high acid so that um, the bubbles don't overwhelm the uh, flavor of the wine. So you can't just make bubbles out of any like you could make it out of any grape. But it sounds like for the best quality or taste to have that acid balance, you're going to be looking for varieties that have a little bit more acid, correct? Correct. Yeah. So um, that's, yeah. You would want to, 
um, find things that, like I said, retain their acid, even if they start to ripen. Mm-hmm. Um, or um, you're going to be picking earlier than other people in the region. So that's what happens for us at 3100 yeah. in, in Idaho. We... Uh, just last week, we brought in the, our final fruit for the year. So we spent mm-hmm. about two weeks harvesting all of our different lots of fruit. Mm-hmm. And um, last week, the other people that make sparkling wine in the region started their mm-hmm. harvest. So it was in the second yeah. week of our harvest. And this week, um, so a week after we're um, not not quite a week after we're done, but um, like three or four days after we were finished, other people started mm-hmm. harvesting their their fruit to make still wines. And um, I'm at least to my knowledge, um, those people aren't making sparkling, but they could be. Okay, okay. Yeah, and I know that there's, and we can go into that, there's a little bit of different timing play in Idaho because of climate and whatever, but that's also interesting. I just thought that you were like cool and and being like, hey, I don't want my grapes as sweet. I want my bricks levels lower. But that's cool to know that like, oh, there's also an element of the type of wine that you're making to why you're harvesting so much earlier than everyone else. Right. Yeah. It all has to do with the the chemistry of the the juice. (laughs) Yeah. So that's that's a fun thing for consumers to know as they're like, you know, going out to like, oh, why, when, when are people harvesting and why? Um, Right. I think in Germany, a lot of, well, I think Riesling is overwhelmingly planted uh, as a white wine in Germany. So I think a lot of the sparkling sect, um, not all of it by any means, but a lot of it is made with Riesling. The Prosecco region um, is mostly, I think it's called the, the Glera uh, Mm -hmm. grape. Uh, but yeah, some of these I might not be as good at, at um, knowing as as I should. <laughs> no, I just was thinking how I feel like through our conversations every time I'm like, and there's another grape and there's another <laughs> grape. Like, I just feel like I need to start making like a chart. I know that there are charts of that, but just like there's yeah. so many grapes and just start like actually pinning them down in my brain because I'm right. a visual person. So, um, okay. So we talked a little bit about like the grape varieties that go in the process. Um, and we kind of touched a little bit on the bottles, but could we just talk a little bit more about like the kind of bottles that you're putting in and, um, yeah, and then maybe we'll talk about the crown cap part of it. Okay. So like the elements of the bottle. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that typically if you're going to open one of those champagne bottles, which we call it champagne glass in the industry, um, mm-hmm. I know that that uh, is a little confusing because it's champagne's the region and everything like that, but um, it's just how they came to be. Typically that champagne glass is going to be, if you hold it up empty, it's going to be pretty heavy. Mm -hmm. Typically it's also going to have a big uh, punt in the bottom, like that nice round shape in the bottom. And the third, typically it's going to have that funny little lip at the top that, uh, like I said earlier, you can either put a crown cap on, or if you have a cork in it, there's kind of a place for the cage to have purchase underneath to hold the, the cork in. So Mm -hmm. those three things. Oh, and then 
also typically not not anymore, but uh, <laughs> it's champagne green. It's that like kind of uh, foliage green. It's not dark dark. Like there's some some stuff that we call dead leaf green, which is more of like a gray green. It's kind of a darker color, yeah. but champagne green. Um, not as as uh, common now. A lot of people bottle their sparkling wine in clear glass, actually, but. Yeah for aging and ageability, a lot of people want champagne green glass because uh, they're going to be aging their sparkling wines for a couple of years if it's done in the traditional method. So having okay. that dark glass gives it that automatic, uh, or not automatic, but additional protection against UV uh, penetration into the glass. The ah. thicker or the heaviness is because the glass is thicker. So you have yeah. um, a lot of pressure inside that bottle. You don't want no exploding. Um, yeah, bottles. you don't want exploding bottles. That punt in the bottom is actually in a parabolic shape, so that typically oh. gives your bottle more strength. It's um, a very strong shape, and when you go into a champagne house or a sparkling wine winery where they're doing things in the traditional method, a lot of times you'll mm-hmm. see those bottles actually stacked one on top of each other. Um, sometimes, you know, eight feet tall. And a lot of times they have them to a certain height and then Mm -hmm. they know they can't go taller than that uh, because the bottles on the bottom will start cracking and uh, having problems. Um, So that parabolic shape helps with the pressure inside the bottle, but also being able to stack things. And then, um, like I was saying before, the the top part of the bottle, that funny lip, is is dual purpose. You can use a crown cap for your secondary fermentation, which is when you're um, making all the bubbles in the bottle. Mm -hmm. And then when you're ready to finish the wine, if you want to put a a cork in it, you take the crown cap off to disgorge, and then you put a cork back in it, and then the cage uh, has that that purchase on the bottle to make sure the, the cork stays in. Nice. You didn't think you were going to get some math today, but we, <laughs> you you pulled out that parabolic and I was just thinking how sturdy arches are yeah. and like, so we can all take a gander back in our math day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned the crown cap versus the cork. Why in sparkling wines, like I just think about the little mushroom and the cork and like the shape of it and how it's so much different. Um, So first, why crown versus cork? I mean, you talked about it within the purpose, but like even I know you finish yours with just a crown cap versus a cork. And then secondary, if you wouldn't mind explaining to us all why they're so funny shaped versus normal. <laughs> yes. And how you get that in there. <laughs> <laughs> so crown caps first. Um, even if you purchase sparkling wine and you feel like um, it's, you know, if it's finished with a crown cap, it's not worth more than a certain dollar amount. That sparkling wine was probably in a crown cap for most of its life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just when it got to the consumer side is when they put the cork in it. Okay. So typically when we when sparkling wineries are making wine in the traditional method, which is how they make it in champagne, you know, adding sugar and yeast to your um, base wine and then mm-hmm. fermenting again in bottle to make your bubbles. During that process, you have a crown cap on. And that's just a nice sturdy seal. You know, um, uh, there's very little, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's very little... Um, 
like issues with them popping off or anything. You know, you're going to get mm-hmm. a good, uh, like all the sides are going to be around it. And then um, the cork, when you go to finish it, is in that funny shape. Um, I'm assuming it's a little bit because of history. So like somebody started doing it that way and they were like, oh, that's mm-hmm. that's cool. We should do it that way. <laughs> and then it just okay. came to be that Tradition. way. Yeah. Um, but also with the sparkling wine, um, you you don't want to be using like a corkscrew to get your cork yeah. out. Like that's dangerous yeah. having this sharp implement. <laughs> so oh, I hadn't thought of that. So having enough uh, of the cork available on the outside of the bottle to be able to, to grab it and twist it or pull it. Um, mm-hmm. And then for the most part, if you've opened a couple bottles of champagne, you'll notice that the cork is pretty solid in there. Obviously, mm-hmm. Like if you start twisting it and everything, it pops out. But you want to make sure that as that pressure kind of changes because you just have been disgorging and then putting the, the cork in there, you want the cork to stay. So that's why we mm-hmm. use those funny little cage things um, mm-hmm. to hold the cork on the bottle just to make sure it's nice and safe and that the, the corks don't pop out. I would say like most of the time the po- corks don't pop for me. Like those you know, in the movies when they like, oh my gosh, and then it goes off and hits the person in the eye. (laughs) I don't think I've ever had a scenario, like maybe like once or twice, but like for the most (laughs) part, I take the cage off and then I'm like, okay, now I got to pull this off. But yeah. Um, So um, how, oh yeah, I was going to just go into how, (laughs) how we get the cork in there. So basically, (laughs) yes. uh, When you, if you look, uh, if you just Google like, uh, corking wine or something and you watch the mechanism. So basically the cork goes into a little machine um, that squeezes the cork um, from like the size cylinder that you see the raw cork Mm -hmm. in. It squeezes it into a skinnier cylinder. And then you Mm -hmm. uh, have like a pin that that comes down and pushes from the top um, into the bottle. And with oh. a champagne cork, same idea. So that would be in any kind of corking situation. But but with a champagne cork, the pin only goes, pushes the cork halfway into the bottle. And then the second half of the cork, at once the, the pressure is released and that cork can re-expand, mm-hmm. uh, it, it looks like that mushroom shape. It expands further once it's outside of the, of the bottle neck than what's inside mm-hmm. of the bottleneck. And if you have a champagne cork and you let and you open it and you let it sit for a long time, like a couple mm-hmm. years, um, uh, or sometimes it doesn't take that long, um, it will actually start to re-expand and you'll see it was at some point a cylinder. It wasn't shaped like a like a mushroom for the entirety of its life. Yeah. Okay. I've definitely seen that in some of my older corks. So. Yeah. The composite corks are really they they expand a lot faster. So if you have a composite cork, you just leave it on your on your kitchen counter for a day yeah. or two, and it should kind of you'll see like oh yeah that is kind of just a cylinder. Ah, okay. So let's uh, let's wrap this up, and I just want to know a little bit about why you guys decided to focus on sparkling wine for your business, and how that's going for you. <laughs> um, we love to drink bubbles. Like I said at the beginning, they're my favorite kind of wine. (laughs) Not Uh that I discriminate against other wines because I don't. I like them all. Um, And 
at the time, nobody in Idaho was making sparkling wine. Occasionally, a winery would make a lot here or a lot there just for Mm -hmm. special occasions or that kind of thing. And we decided, well, I guess if we want to have more Idaho sparkling wine, we've got to make it. So that was our initial thought. And then, um, yeah, as people, we actually, so we made our first wine the same year that a couple people started dabbling in sparkling wine. Um, And Mm -hmm. I'm excited for, you know, there's now over 70 wineries in Idaho. I'm hoping, you know, before we hit 100, there's another at least one sparkling winery, if not more than one. So because we would love to start saying we're Idaho's first sparkling winery instead of only. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and there's a couple that, like you said, dabble in it. And I know that you've sent me some other wines that other people, but apparently they're not exclusively doing right they make they make other yeah they make still wines and they make other products so it's not just sparkling wine which is really the only difference we're happy that they're making bubbles (laughs) yeah do a lot of places do specialty like when when somebody decides to do sparkling wine is it more of kind of that latter thing that other people do where they they do others and then they're like make a one-off sparkling or especially in like champagne or like in other regions of the world do are there a lot more people that just like this is all we do um I think there's a good mix because I think when you have people that come in to taste wine uh if you especially if you start to have a tourism behind it people that come in they don't know the region and they just every tasting room they go to they're like do you guys make sparkling wine do you have a sparkling wine um so I think that's one of the reasons that some people get into it is they just are constantly hearing about it from their customers. So they see there's a market for it. Uh, But I do think that well-established wine regions in the world have, Mm -hmm. have subsections of people doing certain things. So like in Napa, there are several uh, sparkling wine wineries and that's what they do. That's what they specialize in. And then there are certain people in Napa that only make red wine. People come in and they're like, what? Mm-hmm. I can't do a white wine tasting. And they're like, no, you can't. We only make red wine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. then there's, you know, um, people that uh, focus on dessert wine. So maybe they have other things, but that's like their focus. And so yeah. I think there is once wine regions become established and like I was saying, the tourism aspect, you have mm-hmm. to start setting yourselves apart somehow. And so okay. maybe that's the way it happens. And maybe it's just that people start making wine and then they figure out, oh, you know what? I really love making red wine. I don't love making white wine. So I'm just going to focus on red wine moving forward. Um, yeah. But figuring out your sense. niche is always helpful because it also helps you make decisions moving forward. We had somebody reach out to us last year and say, hey, it was like October. Hey, we've got a couple tons of Chardonnay. Would you like like them? We could strike a deal with you. And I was like, yeah, we would. But it's way past time for us to pick. We can't. Yeah. Like what, what, how, I didn't even ask what their acidity was because I mm-hmm. asked what their bricks were. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's just not going to work for us. I'm sorry. So, yeah. so yeah, it helps to make your decisions sometimes when you have that focus. Yeah. That's really cool. I really hope with, especially you were saying, you know, Pinot Noir and stuff that there'll be more in the Willamette Valley because that's kind of what oh, we're, yeah. we're known for. So um, there are. I just keep thinking I would like to see more and more. I know that there are, but yeah, more and right. more um, sparklings of the Pinot Noir. Okay. So 
let's wrap this up. If anyone is interested in making sparkling wine, what should they know? What are some tricks? What are, um, you know, just like, (laughs) let's not make that very long. And then, yeah, let's, uh, you know, if they're just wanting to get interested and get more involved in bubbly winemaking, like what should they do from the consumer and the winemaker standpoint? I think for, if you want to make even homemaking sparkling wine, one, buy the right glass. Don't try to like go to your home brew store and say, I need champagne glass. I'm making sparkling wine. Yeah. Don't don't try to make it in in bottles that are not meant for sparkling wine because that's unsafe. The second would be acid. Acid, acid, acid. If you're gonna if you're p- picking grapes or buying grapes, um mm-hmm. don't wait until they're enjoyable to eat. You want them to be like you're eating them and you're like, I can only eat like one or two of these are like so high acid. They're just super zingy. Ah. <laughs> um, just, yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about the sugar level because you're not tra- like if you were distilling this and you wanted to have high alcohol, that'd be one thing. You'd want high sugars initially so that you could then like it would be an easier process. But you're not making sparkling wine for the, the alcohol bang for your buck. You're making sparkling wine for the nuances so make sure that your flavors are are there, which is high acid. Those are my two big pieces of advice. Thanks, Haley. I um now I'm like, can I make pears sparkling? <laughs> yeah, we'll have to talk to what? yeah, have to talk to Gig so, about how that works. <laughs> I think I'm gonna have to figure out how to just make cider first and then go from there. So yeah. thank you so much, Haley. Um, I definitely learned so much today. And I know that we've continually talked about this stuff, but it was cool to see, for me at least, some of the full circles of some of our other conversations coming together and um, yeah, yeah, just seeing this all. So yes, I think next week or we're so we're going to start talking about the upcoming topics that we're we're going to address so that people have time to write in. So in the next couple of weeks, we might be talking about fall planting tips with Ashley, maybe some home wine making tips, um, varietal selection possibly for new and uh, new plantings um, of vineyards or new regions. And if you have questions about any of those topics, or if you have other topics that you are interested in hearing us discuss, please email them in. You can always reach us at wholeclusterconversation at gmail.com. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Whole Cluster Conversation music provided by michael johnson of grand falconer audio production provided by our friend ukiah bogle make sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you like to listen ciao